Welcome to Toonspiracy, where music and conspiracies collide. Every two weeks, we'll put on our detective hats, grab our magnifying glasses, and dive deeper into the strangest music-related conspiracy theories from around the world. From around the world. Brace yourself for impact. Toonspiracy experience will begin in three, two, one. Hi, and welcome to Toonspiracy. I'm your host, Chris, and today we're going to talk about the mysterious death of Brian Jones. I'll be honest, being my first episode, I thought to myself, okay, holy crap, where do I start? There's so many different cases that I could cover, because as you know, there's so many different conspiracies in the music realm. It became slowly a pretty easy decision for me, because July 3rd marked the 50th anniversary of Brian Jones' passing, so I thought, hey, nothing more timely than diving into this case. At the end of this podcast, I want you to tell me, did Brian Jones drown in a pool, or was there something more sinister at play? So without further ado, let's dive into this case. Lewis Brian Hopkin Jones was born in the United Kingdom on February 28, 1942. At the young age of four, Brian fell victim to croup, a respiratory condition that left him with asthma for the rest of his life. Outside of his asthma, Brian lived an ordinary life. He was born to middle-class parents and was the youngest of three siblings. Growing up, Brian was indoctrinated into the music scene. Both of his parents were music enthusiasts that radiated their passion into their children's lives. His father was a piano teacher in his free time, and his mother also had a passion for the keys, playing both piano and organ in their local church, as well as leading the choir from time to time. They were a music-savvy family, so it isn't really a question where Brian Jones's music abilities came from. By the time he turned 15, Jones became head over heels for jazz after first hearing the music of Cannonball Adderley. After relentless pestering and persuasion, Jones was eventually able to convince his parents to buy him a saxophone. A short two years after that, Jones's music abilities immensely grew and his parents bought him his first acoustic guitar as a birthday present. Being guitarist for the Stones, you can say, this is where it all started. It was around this age when things started to begin shifting in his life. I don't know about you, but when I was 17, I was definitely rebellious. However, Brian Jones makes me look like a saint if we were to compare our actions. Jones was barely able to scrape by in his classes, putting in minimal effort, and repping this devil-may-care attitude. After a stint at a boys' school, Jones grew a dislike for school uniforms and a hatred for conforming in general. So, okay, yes, he totally fits the rock star persona, doesn't he? His school teachers were the absolute bane of his existence, and he had zero regard for their authority. Jones's hostility towards these authority figures landed him on academic suspension not once, but twice, on these two separate occasions. As you can imagine, though, his classmates thought he was pretty hot stuff, being the class clown, the rebel without a cause, that ideal bad boy. Late that summer, Jones's girlfriend, Valerie Corbet, became pregnant, launching Jones into a frenzy. After lengthy contemplation, Jones encouraged her to get an abortion, which she ignored. 
As it happens, nine months later, Brian and Valerie's son, Simon, was born and later put up for adoption. Shortly after the news of this pregnancy, Jones quit school and packed his bags, leaving home to spend the rest of the summer in Northern Europe. Jones reached an all-time low, living a bohemian lifestyle, playing guitar on the streets for money and living off whatever money he could muster from tips. Eventually, Jones reached his breaking point after running low on money, and then he decided to pull a prodigal son-like move and return home to England, where his parents welcomed him with open arms and warm hearts. A couple months after returning home from his hippie phase, Jones went to the Wooden Bridge Hotel in Guildford to see a band perform that he really enjoyed. At the show, he met a married woman, and the two of them hooked up, ultimately resulting in pregnancy numero dos, which again was carried to term. Think he's done knocking up women? Well, that's a negatory ghostwriter. In 1961, Jones's short-lived girlfriend gave birth, and fast forward three more years down the road from that, another woman gave birth to Jones's fourth child. Are you ready for this? We're not even done yet. Ever so briefly after his fourth child's birth, Don Malloy, a sporadic girlfriend of Jones, told Jones alongside the band's management that she was pregnant by him. The band's management at the time started to see a trend and offered Malloy a check for close to 700 euros for more or less hush money. She cashed the check and agreed to make no further statements about Jones and their child to the public or the press. And a bit of a fun fact for you, the actual document signed by Malloy was witnessed by Mick Jagger. Before moving on, I want to throw this out there. Given his head-scratching sexual past, do you think that there might be possible frustrations that bubble to the top from ex-lovers? Also, he had five different children from five different women, all before the age 23. Yes, you heard me, five. Wouldn't it be silly to believe that five was the cap? Or were there possibly more women that simply didn't come forward with the truth about who their child's father was? As interesting and as confusing as that entire situation was, let's move away from Jones's strange love life, or lack thereof. Let's start moving into his music career and what we all know him for, being one of the two founding members of the Rolling Stones. As I mentioned before, Jones's entire family was incredibly musical, and people found it no surprise given his background that he became the musician of that caliber. In 1962, Jones left his hometown and moved to London, where he became friends with Alexis Corner, Paul Jones, future cream bassist Jack Bruce, and other big names in the rising London blues and jazz scene. Due to the influence of his peers, Jones took it upon himself to be a blues musician for a brief stint, going by the name Elmo Jones and playing the slide guitar. That same year, Jones also started a musical group with Paul Jones called The Roosters. And in January of the next year, Brian and Paul left the group, and this unknown man named Eric Clapton took over Brian's position as guitarist. Okay, maybe this is just music nerd Chris that had to share these tidbits with you. But isn't it cool to see the network of musicians that he was alongside even before starting playing for the Rolling Stones? Before researching this case, I honestly had no idea that he played alongside the likes of Paul Jones and Eric freaking Clapton. So, let's get back to the formation of the Rolling Stones. In May of 1962, 
Jones placed an advertisement in a local publication inviting musicians to audition for a new R&B group. And surprisingly, this is where it all started to come together. Pianist Ian Stewart, or as most people know him, Stu, was the first person to respond. Shortly after, singer Mick Jagger joined the band. Mick Jagger and his friend Keith Richards had crossed paths before with Jones previously through the music scene, so this relationship was somewhat already kindled before Mick had even read the listing. Jagger kept inviting Richards back to the band's rehearsals, and eventually Richards fell in love with the music and decided to join the band as their guitarist, wrapping up the lineup. The Rolling Stones played their first gig later that summer, and then the rest was history. Things would never be the same for Jones and the rest of the band. So Chris, the Rolling Stones sailed off into the sunset, changing the music scene forever, right? Well, not quite. That's, that's why I'm doing this podcast. A man by the name of Andrew Oldham eventually joined the Stones as the band's manager, and almost immediately, Jones's tune towards everything began to change. Oldham was brought into this position to do what managers do best, handle anything and everything to make the band more successful. While doing an audit of the Rolling Stones' current practices, Oldham noticed two key elements that their band was striking out on. One, they heavily relied on performing live covers. And while everyone loves a good cover, especially me, what's not to love about a a cover song? That's just simply not sustainable for a band. They can't go that far as being a cover band. At that time, their covers were primarily blues-centric, too, which obviously pissed off Jones. This was his style and his band created for the sole purpose of playing music. So to reiterate, that's one of the key elements that Oldham wanted changed. The second biggest inconsistency that Oldham discovered was the band's bookkeeping practices. With the band's financial situation being in shambles, Oldham knew that he had to make drastic changes for the Rolling Stones to stay in the limelight. The biggest change? He mentioned how the band needed to write their own music. After taking a look at the successes of Beatles duo John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Oldham recommended Mick Jagger and Keith Richards to develop their own originals, pushing Jones further out of the equation. Let's take a minute to be in Brian Jones's shoes. He's the one that started this band. He's the one that loves jazz. He's the one that loves blues. So they started off being this jazz and blues band, and now the manager, Oldham, comes into the situation and says, hey, we can't do that style of music anymore. We need to write originals that don't sound like this. Obviously, that really ticked him off. With Jagger and Richards now writing music to save money, that just really pushes his leadership even farther back. So that's reason number two why he's getting pretty mad. Needless to say... Oldham's rise to managerial control was the tipping point for Jones. When the band began touring in 1963, Jones traveled separately from the band, staying in different hotels from the rest of his bandmates, and day by day becoming more reclusive and alienated. From one city to the next, and from that city to another, the entire process of touring began to take a toll on Jones's body and emotional health. He began to abuse drugs and alcohol, amplifying his antisocial and unfriendly behavior. If you thought things couldn't get worse for Jones in his relationship with the other bandmates, well, you thought wrong. Let's fast forward to March of 1967, so a couple of years down the road. Anita Pallenberg, Jones's girlfriend of two years, left him for Richards. Yeah, Richards as in the other guitarist Richards. 
further destroying the already damaged relationship between the two of them. The band's tensions and Jones' drug abuse seem to have a symbiotic relationship. Jones almost always seemed to have a hazed, glazed-over look and would randomly not show up to recording sessions, band practices, and occasionally a live performance. In Bill Wyman's book, Stone Alone, he described Jones's personality as being two-sided. He mentioned how, quote, one Brian was introverted, shy, sensitive, deep-thinking. The other was a preening peacock, gregarious, artistic, and desperately needing assurance from his peers, end quote. Two months after Anita Pallenberg left him for his bandmate, Jones was arrested for drug possession. Authorities entered his apartment and found marijuana, cocaine, and meth. Of the three drugs, he only confessed to using pot, stating that he would never do drugs harder than that. To me, though, that begs the question. If he didn't use his substances, why did he have the substances and or paraphernalia on his premises? Also, who would he have taken the fall for? I mean, if it wasn't his, why would he even take the fall for it? He's a member of the Rolling Stones. Maybe I'm reading into this a bit much, but it's sending off some alarms in my head. Jones's next encounter with the law in regards to drugs happened almost a year later, where he was arrested for possession of marijuana. At the time, Jones was still on probation from his first offense and serving a lengthy jail sentence seemed imminent. He pleaded not guilty, stating that the pot was left on his premises by previous tenants. Unfortunately for Jones, the jury wasn't buying it. Not one bit. However, Jones's guardian angel must have been looking out for him because the judge had sympathy on him, leaving him with a fine of only 1,800 euros and told him, for goodness sake, don't get in trouble again or it really will be serious. The culmination of Jones's legal battles, estrangement from his bandmates, drug abuse, and erratic mood swings reached a fever pitch for the band. The Rolling Stones were wanting to play a tour in the United States, which would be their first tour there in three years, but Jones was in no condition to tour with them. Not only that, but due to his most recent arrest, Jones was having an extremely hard time acquiring a U.S. work visa to even consider being a part of the tour. After trying hard to get one, Jones was unfortunately not able to acquire one, which means that the band had to make a quick decision because they needed a second guitarist for this U.S. tour. It would be on June 8th of 1969 that Jones was visited by Jagger, Richards, and Watts, notifying him that the Stones would be moving forward without him. In the public's eyes, it seemed as though Jones had left voluntarily. Nevertheless, it was the band members that told him although he was being asked to depart from their group, it was ultimately up to him on how he would go public with this information. The next day, Jones proclaimed his departure to the world, making numerous statements, but namely, quote, I no longer see eye to eye with the others over the discs we are cutting, end quote. So Chris, what was life like after his departure from the band, you may ask? Quite frankly, things were great. Alexis Corner, also known as the father of British blues, came to visit Jones at his residence and noted that Jones seemed, quote, happier than ever. Not only that, but Jones seemed to rediscover his longing and passion for music. Jones was in touch with notable names in the scene, including John Lennon, Mitch Mitchell, and Jimmy Miller about his intentions to start another band. Jones was so passionate about forming another musical group that he had even recorded rough demos of his own songs. Unfortunately, as things got better in Jones's life, 
things took an unfortunate turn for the worst. Around midnight in July of 1969, Brian Jones was discovered motionless at the bottom of his swimming pool. His girlfriend at the time, Anna, was convinced that Jones was alive when he was taken out of the pool, insisting that beyond a reason of a doubt, Jones still had a pulse. Once the doctors arrived to the horrific scene, they stated that it was too late to revive him and pronounced him dead at the scene. So just like that, Jones is dead, right after his excommunication from the band. Was it purely misfortune? According to the coroner, nothing seemed out of the ordinary with his body that you wouldn't see in a typical drowning case. The only obscure observation from the coroner was that he noticed that Jones's liver and heart were greatly enlarged, and this was evident due to his past drug and alcohol abuse. The official cause of death noted on Jones's coroner's report? Ready for it? Death by misadventure. Wow. Obviously, it didn't take long for theories to begin circulating around Jones's death. In fact, associates of the Stones claimed to have information that he was murdered. In 1993, reports came out that Jones was murdered by Frank Thorogood, who was a local builder doing some work on Jones's property. Well, not that night, however. It was reported that Jones and Thorogood both went for a late-night swim around the midnight hour, making Frank the last man to see Jones alive. Not to mention, it was common knowledge to those in close circles with Jones that he was amidst a large financial dispute with Thorogood in regards to the work that was being performed on his property. Outside of the Thorogood theory, there are other key elements that we need to touch on. In 2009, so literally 40 years after his death, local police decided to finally review this case for the first time since the accident took place. Scott Jones, an investigative journalist, tracked down as many people as he could that were at Jones's house the night of his death. On top of tracking down all these people, he had acquired unseen police files that were previously held at the National Archives. In total, Scott provided the police with over 600 documents that provided extra evidence into the case behind Brian Jones's death. In November of 2008, Scott Jones, with the last name being Jones as well, let's just call him Scott, so Scott came to the conclusion that Frank Thorogood did in fact kill Brian Jones. So much so that he spent years and years gathering over 600 pieces of documents to reach this conclusion. Scott claims that Jones and Thorogood engaged in a fight that resulted in his death, and that the local police officers were the ones that covered up the truth behind his death. In accordance with Scott's discoveries, Anna, who was one of the four notably present that night, did state that Thorogood might have killed Jones accidentally during the alleged horseplay, and that he might have made no conscious effort to revive Jones. Whether it's Anna's statement or Scott's discovery, that is one of the four people at the house that night agreeing that Thorogood committed the murder. Wait, one of four? I think you're missing someone, Chris. Yep, you're right. Let's now do a little bit of reviewing of who was there that evening. Brian Jones is number one. Anna Wallen, aka his girlfriend, is person number two. Frank Thorogood is the person number three. Person number four that was confirmed to be at Brian Jones's house that night? A nurse by the name of Janet Lawson. Now my friends, this is where things start to get a little hairy. Janet Lawson was dating the Rolling Stones bus driver at the time, and he will come into the equation a little bit later. 
but as for Janet, she was inside the house playing guitar at the time of death. Years later on her deathbed, though, Janet stated this about Brian and Frank's relationship. Brian had sacked him that day, referring to him stiffing Frank on money. There was something in the air. Frank was acting strangely that night, throwing his weight around a bit. Does that mean he did it? Not necessarily, but I do believe that there is a reason why she waited until her deathbed to make this claim. Okay, getting back to Scott and his case. Eventually, with all of the documentation brought forward, the police reviewed the case per Scott's request, but they stated that there was no new evidence to suggest to the coroner that his original verdict of death by misadventure was incorrect. But then again, of course they're going to say that. Even though it was decades later, the force was still clearly wanting to save their face and not enter down a rabbit hole of which they couldn't see the bottom. Alright, I know I'm shooting my guns all over the place, but let's get back to the bus driver, Tom Keylock. As mentioned above, his girlfriend at the time, Janet Lawson, was one of the four present at Jones's house the night of his death. Although she was confirmed there, it's her relation to Keylock that was the most alarming part. For decades, Tom denied that he was present that night at Jones's home, but before his death in 2009, stating, of course I was there, mentioning how he was in the attic most of the night. Um, okay, that's super sketchy. How come 40 years down the road, this is the first time we hear that there were five people at the house that night, not just four? On top of that, Keylock's brother was a senior policeman at the time, which adds to my suspicion of his involvement in the cover-up. Supposedly, Thorogood confessed to Tom Keylock on his deathbed that he was the one who murdered Jones. I don't know about you, but I've red flags waving and sirens going off in my head right now. They're both suspects in this case. Do you think that Keylock made this up so he could clear his name? With Thorogood six feet under, who's to confirm the validity of this confession? So was it Keylock that murdered Jones? Being the bus driver, I'm sure there's plenty of pent-up aggression aimed towards Jones. Or was it Thorogood? I mean, it makes so much sense. Apparently, Jones owed him a considerable amount of money for his construction work, and Thorogood was the last person to see Jones before his untimely death. Then again, maybe it was an estranged ex-lover of Jones's that couldn't get over the grief she felt from birthing their shared child. How about this? Did the band need him officially out of the picture to be sure that he wouldn't work his way back into the music sphere? Being a drug-loving musician, wouldn't it be convenient blaming drugs and misfortune to be the cause of his death? They knew about his demos, as well as his intentions to start another group. Or finally, was he simply too stoned to swim and floated into a forever sleep? Whatever it may be, the death of Brian Jones will live into the depths of history forever being riddled with controversy. I would love nothing more than your feedback on this case. What do you think happened to Brian Jones? Please follow us at Toonspiracy on Facebook and Twitter and at Toon.Spiracy on Instagram to voice your thoughts and feelings. Through social media, you can join the conversation and stay up to date on future and past cases that I cover. Thanks again for listening, everyone. This is Chris, signing off. Toon
Tunespiracy is brought to you by Burma Media. All of the views and statements made in this episode are not necessarily fact and serve as assumptions using existing publicly available information. Thanks again for listening, Tunespiracy theorists, and we'll see you again in two weeks.